to a thing. Have you seen that vigilante man? Have you seen that vigilante man? Have you seen that vigilante man? Come on, this little John B. My grandfather and me. Around this old town, we did roam. Drinking all night. Out into it.
Good morning. You're listening to Labor and Love. We're still having some technical difficulties getting started, so we'll be back in a minute. Yeah, this week on Bug Out Square, you know, like uh, a lot of people are doing, it's the uh, end of the year, last show of the year, and uh, last show of the decade, does that mean much? Not sure, but um, uh, I got some good records, and I'm going to try to get back to um, this uh, this year of uh, contributors, so uh, we'll see, sometimes when I go far back, uh, things are... Have become derelict, but we'll uh, we'll see how that works out. So thanks for doing what you got to do to do. This is Bug Out Square, and yeah, uh, 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 it should be good. Chased us out in the rain. Was that a vigilante man? Stormy days, we'd pass the time away, sleeping in some good warm place. Man, come along and we give him a little race. Was that a vigilante man? Preacher Casey was just a working man. And he said, unite all you working men. Killed him in the river. Some strange man was that a vigilante man. Vigilante man Why does a vigilante man Carry that sawed off Shotgun in his hand Would he shoot his brother and sister down I rambled around from town to town I rambled around from town to town and they herded us around like a wild herd of cattle Was that the vigilante men? Have you seen that vigilante man? Have you seen that vigilante man? I've heard his name all over the land
vigilante man Have you seen that vigilante man I've been hearing his name all over the land house sleeping just as still as a mouse man come along chase the sound in the rain was that a vigilante man Okay, yeah, we're here. We uh, sort of circumvented our technical difficulties. My technical difficulties. This is the B coming at you from Mutiny Radio and the Labor and Love Show. Mutiny Radio 2781 21st Street, a full-fledged community arts center. Come on down to Mutiny and create your voice. Come and donate to Mutiny. Come and be active here. Come and be in the audience. Come and be on the stage. This is the place where it's all happening. And my show every Saturday morning is the Labor and Love Show, which you are tuned to. A show for, by, and about working people, their history, their opinions, their points of view. 
by for and about. This is the show where we tell you if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Labor in your real life. <laughs> well, what do, you, what do we got today? We've got our regular, we've got radio labor. We've got uh, a labor beat. Um, we've got uh, stories about TAs at UC Santa Cruz and their strike, which is happening right now. The question, can workers still use the National Labor Relations Board under Trump? They've changed it. They've turned it. The National Labor Relations Board is supposed to protect the interests of working Americans. Well, it's protecting the interest of rich Americans. Remember, your labor makes them rich. Of course, they don't want you to have a union. Of course, they don't want you to stop working ever, ever, ever. Of course, they want you to come up there with your hat in your hand so they can make the most money off you. Okay, that, that panegyric's over, so let's, let's look at uh, what we started with, then we'll go back to what's on later. We started out with a, um, a treatment, a cover, they call it, of the John B., the... Uh, Beach Boys song, but much older than that. A folk song about some guys on a ship and how their trip is uh, ruined. A real sad song. The Beach Boys kind of compose it. It's nice and tight. The harmonies are excellent. Uh, it's a production. Uh Dwight Yoakam sounds like a sailor who's busted down or, or uh, someone who is on a sailing ship and has been busted down. Uh, and one just wants to get out of there. So that started out. Then we had sort of a garbled recording of Woody Guthrie. More about him later. And we had Etta James with her classic rendition of Bob Dylan's you got to serve somebody. Who's it going to be? Is it going to be the devil or the Lord? Is it going to be capital or is it going to be labor? And last but certainly not least, a 1980s version of, by Ry Cooter of the Vigilante Man. Um, Woody Guthrie's song about uh well, let's see people who hire them out mostly white racists who hire themselves out to bust down people's movements historically to keep down any movements among people of color to oppose them that vigilante man have you seen that vigilante man 
We're going to have economic update. Richard Wolf is going to respond to um, arguments about so against socialism. Oh, socialism never worked. It's never been tried. Any okay. We all know for one reason or another that those arguments are specious. But Richard Wolf really puts them together in a portable package. <laughs> I have fallen in love with American names. This week I, I remembered this excellent poem by Stephen Vincent Benet, a nationalist but a poetic nationalist, something about pride that doesn't put somebody else down. Often nationalist works of art or movements have to put somebody else down to assert themselves. All right, we played Edda. We played the Vigilante Man. I want to play another Ry Cooter song uh, later, a version of another Woody Guthrie. Uh, <clears throat> we're going to play a couple of requests. Normally we don't take requests, but uh, the requester is a all-time friend of mine. Friend is not even quite good enough word for for it. So he's got a couple of his songs coming up. You're going to love them. And I want to I want to cop about 10 minutes from one of our local shows here at Mutiny. Um it's called the Weekly Review and there's a member of the uh Democratic Socialists of America talking about city politics which really interested me and I wanted to share with you. Um, a few other things. We had a birthday yesterday, so we'll play a song for a, a new six-year-old. And uh, like I said, Radio Labor coming right up. This is our World Labor Report. Radio Labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, January 10th, 2020. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, 250 million workers stage a general strike in India. How to reach gender wage parity. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. This is Radio Labor. More than 250 million workers and their supporters held a general strike in India on Wednesday, January 8th, 2020. 250 million is four times the total population of France. The protest was aimed at the right-wing neoliberal policies of the Narendra Modi government. The Modi government seems more interested in fueling discriminatory policies against Muslims than helping the workers of the country. NewsClick, a progressive media service in India, reported on the massive strike. This is probably the largest ever strike in the country's history, and maybe even in any country across the world. Workers are mobilizing against the far-right Narendra Modi government 
and its policies at the economic and at the social level. Ever since coming to power in 2014, and especially since returning to power in 2019, the Modi government has launched an all-out war against the working class. The government is carrying forward a policy of mass privatization, underfunding of the public sector, and dilution of labor laws. Through this, it aims to weaken the organized working class, which is the major barrier to the supremacy of the right wing in India. To resist this, 10 national trade unions and a number of other independent workers' associations have jointly given the call for a countrywide strike action. The call was given at a national mass convention of workers held on Parliament Street in New Delhi on September 30th. Nearly 175 farmers and agricultural workers' organizations will also take part in the national strike. They will be protesting against the increasing debt and the refusal of the government to ensure remunerative prices for their produce. This has led to large-scale economic distress and even suicides among the farmers. So who are the organizers of this strike? The central trade unions or the CTUs, namely the INTUC, the AITUC, HMS, CITU, AIUTUC, TUCC, SEWA, AICCTU, LPF and UTUC are the main organizers. Along with them, about 60 organizations of students and elected office bearers of several universities have extended their solidarity with regard to raised fee structures and opposition to the commercialization of education. What are the key demands of these trade unions? According to data from the Center for Monitoring Indian Economy, the unemployment rate in the Indian economy was almost 10% at the end of September 2019, a record 45-year high. Unemployment among youth between the ages of 20 and 29 has increased by 73% over the last two years, reaching 28%. As many as 30-35% to 35 of those who do have jobs are categorized as underemployed, which means their work does not match their qualifications. As many as 4.7 million people have lost their jobs. The workers are demanding an immediate solution to the crisis of unemployment, which threatens the very future of the country. Another key demand is resolving the economic crisis. The government has been assuming that its neoliberal policies will automatically hike up the growth rate. However, the opposite has happened, with the GDP hitting a six-year low of 5% in the April-June quarter in 2019. There has been a sharp decline in the purchasing power of common people because of rising unemployment, stagnant wages, and the increasing cost of necessities. These include electricity, public transport, and medicines. Due to this, the demand for basic commodities has sunk in the domestic market, leaving 25% of the productive capacity of the industrial sector unutilized. Amid all this, corporate net profits grew by 22.3% during 2018-19. Social inequality has risen to such an extent that the richest 1% cornered 73% of the total wealth produced in the Indian economy last year, leaving a mere 2% to be shared among the poorest half of the country's population, which is about 670 million people. The working class of the country is bearing the brunt of this economic crisis and is demanding an answer. Another key issue is the revoking of regressive labor reforms. Amid all this economic crisis and unemployment, the assault on labor continues. The main aspect of this attack is the replacement of 44 central labor laws with four labor codes. The Modi government has introduced a series of changes in existing labor laws, which have taken away even the limited protection offered in terms of job security, wages and various benefits. In fact, the new labor codes entail a regime of more working hours, more workload and more dependence on owners for retaining jobs and less rights to organize or legally challenge exploitative practices. The new laws which are in the process of being notified will ease penalties on managements for violation of laws. 
it will make it more difficult for workers to nail down such violations and hollow the labor inspection system that was supposed to implement these laws. This will definitely pave the way for more and unbridled exploitation. At the same time, there is also a huge hike in prices. Cereals, pulses, cooking oils and the big three vegetables that is potatoes, onions and tomatoes are staples throughout India. The prices of most of these items are soaring. Wheat prices are up by 56% and flour by 26%. Potato prices have shot up by 67% and onion prices have increased 5 times. Despite clueless and desperate measures by the government like importing some onions, nothing is changing. Data shows that in November 2019, food inflation was 8.66% compared with the general inflation of 5.54%. Along with record levels of unemployment and stagnating wages, this back-breaking price rise is destroying the lives of working families. Another key demand of the workers is an end to disinvestment and stopping foreign direct investment in public sector units. The public sector in India, that is companies and concerns that are owned by the central and state governments, are the repository of huge national wealth. This includes land and minerals and vital infrastructure. The BJP-led government, however, has decided to allow 100% foreign direct investment in such strategic sectors of the Indian economy like defence, railways, telecom, civil aviation, satellites, petroleum, mining and coal. This will not only destroy the existing public sector companies which provide jobs to millions, but will also compromise national interest and leave the country at the mercy of private players. In addition to this, the central trade unions are also demanding the withdrawal of the Land Acquisition Amendment Bill or Ordinance, which helps big corporates take over large tracts of land while the owners suffer. In addition to all of this, the central trade unions have also taken a strong stand against the discriminatory and divisive Citizenship Amendment Act and the associated National Population Register and National Register of Citizens. These steps will end up making Muslims second-class citizens inside the country and will lead to huge religious and ethnic violence. India's working class has been a pillar of resistance against the Narendra Modi-led government. The strike of January 8th has seen the workers of the country present an alternative vision for India and renew their struggle. You can find more progressive news about India at www.newsclick.in. Women workers are paid an average 20% less than men. The problem is persistent, but measures can be taken to narrow the gap. The Equal Pay International Coalition, which includes many labor organizations, points to the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, as objectives for the struggles to win gender wage parity. Gender pay gaps stubbornly persist. At present, across the world, women earn around 20% less than men on average per month. One of the most effective ways to reduce the gender pay gap is to promote equal pay for work of equal value, as provided for under the Sustainable Development Goals, specifically 5 and 8.5 of the 2030 Agenda. Reducing the gender pay gap is not impossible. All over the world, countries, companies and workers are pioneering new and innovative solutions. Legislation providing the right to equal pay for work of equal value. Requiring companies to publish their gender pay gap data publicly. There are free online pay calculators and other tools which determine the portion of discrimination of the gender pay gap. Companies that apply equal pay can be certified. Minimum wage policies and collective bargaining agreements that include equal pay clauses. 
What is clear is that no one-size solution can fit all, and that no single actor can solve the challenge of equal pay alone. The Equal Pay International Coalition, EPIC, is a collective effort to accelerate progress in closing the gender pay gap by 2030. You can find more information about EPIC at www.equalpayinternationalcoalition.org. Here with his report about union events around the world is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labour Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about workers and their unions from around the world in 31 languages. Here's a small sample of those stories. Our top stories section included links to coverage of the record-breaking national pension strike in France and the solidarity pickets at French embassies around the world organized by transportation workers, how and why unions are growing rapidly in Hong Kong, and of course the political strike by 250 million Indian workers last Wednesday. We also had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. We carried stories about wage strikes by Dutch pharmacy staff, Angolan oil and waste collection workers, Portuguese call center employees and airline ground staff, Belgian retirement home staff, hospital workers in Mali, retail workers in New Zealand and in Spain, Tunisian public transport drivers and their comrades on the French island of Martinique, and by textile workers in Bangladesh who have stopped work and who began a hunger strike on New Year's Eve. Strikes against rollbacks were being mounted by Spanish electricity workers who were resisting cuts to their pensions, while teachers and doctors in Brazil maintained their walkouts against cuts to equipment and supplies budgets. Walkouts by workers fighting government austerity policies included Portuguese solid waste collection workers and hospital staff who were fighting for a living wage after years of freezes and rollbacks, as were public service workers in Chad and in Tunisia. Our Working Women pages included stories about a Japanese government inquiry that found that a well-known reporter not only sexually harassed dozens of women co-workers, but relied on his employer to falsely claim to have folded the business when the workers formed a union to challenge his behavior, how Chilean unions are fighting for a new feminist constitution in an alliance with women's organizations, and the formation in Argentina of an explicitly feminist trade union representing NGO workers. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the conviction of three French telecom executives after employees committed suicide due to workplace stress, the news that 578 Spanish workers died as a result of workplace trauma in 2019, a threat of a national banking walkout in Lebanon over assaults on employees, and yet another building collapse in Cambodia, this one killing 36 construction workers. Currently, Labor Start is running three online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Union Nation with A Woman's Place is in Her Union. A woman's place is in her union. 
by the International Association of Machinists, the IAF. And that's it. International labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Okay, that was our international labor news. Let's do a little uh, local stuff here today. Um, I want to talk about the TAs at UC Santa Cruz. Um, this is a situation that just developed uh, this week. And uh, let's listen to what the local Santa Cruz um, TAs. Now, this is one of the uh, real egregious parts of the local economy, um, what's called the gig economy. And what happens is um, people, people who are in the education business, okay, let's call them that. People who are in the education business and who are on the, in their careers, you know, trying to get degrees, trying to write papers, trying to take classes, uh, uh, the right classes, you know, that that will get you your degree. Um, they become interchangeable parts. Uh, kind of like uh, Uber drivers or something. Somebody who gets used at the cheapest rate and then gets dumped. Right? They don't want to pay any benefits for you. They don't want you to advance to the point where you're you're independent. And I you know, I'm not saying there are people who sit around and think about this, but this is how the system goes. So anyone who follows along with that system is contributing to this. Let's listen. Here's a uh, a local station in Santa Cruz. 
With KEZU News, I'm Michelle Loxton. On the campus of UC Santa Cruz today, over 200 students joined in a rally to support striking graduate teaching assistants and campus workers. issue basically comes down to housing affordability. KEZU's Erica Mahoney looked into the reason behind the strike and its impact. Tony Boardman is a PhD student in literature at UC Santa Cruz. He also works as a teaching assistant, or TA for short. But Boardman says the pay isn't enough. He's an international student from the UK and says people warned him about the high cost of living in Santa Cruz. But I, I thought there would be a way, I thought the university would take care of me. And that's not how it turned out. A recent study by Apartment List found nearly 60% of people living in Santa Cruz are cost burdened, meaning they spend more than 30% of their paycheck on rent. That's a higher rate than in San Francisco or San Jose. UCSC needs to pay its workers a living wage, and there's, there's a ton of workers on campus who need this and who aren't getting the deal that they need. TAs across the UC system are all paid the same rate, regardless of their area's cost of living. They make roughly $2,400 a month before taxes. Their 20-hour work week includes instructing labs, holding office hours, and grading. About a month ago, hundreds of grad students at UC Santa Cruz went on strike, a grading strike. They decided to not submit grades for undergrad courses until the school provides a cost of living adjustment for all grad students. They want an additional $1,400 a month. It's saying that we can't do the labor that we're expected to do if the university won't pay us the money that we need to live and work here. It's the first week back at school, and here in front of the bookstore, things seem pretty normal. Students are grabbing a bite to eat, walking to class, but it's not really business as usual. Many undergraduate students are missing at least one grade from the last quarter. Well, it's been very, I don't want to say stressful, but at the same time, a little, just because over the winter break, it's kind of like nerve-wracking. That's senior Sarah Valenzuela. Not knowing what you got for the class and, you know, how that builds anxiety. As the new quarter begins, TAs have reached out to students and submitted grades for those who urgently need them. The union that represents over 19,000 student employees at all UC schools has not authorized the strike because back in 2018, they negotiated a four-year contract with wage increases of 3% per year. But Veronica Hamilton says they can't wait two more years. She's the local unit chair for the union and a UC Santa Cruz TA. People um, can't pay their rent now. People are dropping out of their graduate programs now. and it. It's too long to wait until the next contract campaign. Scott Hernandez-Jason is the spokesperson for UC Santa Cruz. So this strike um, goes against their contract um, and the very nature of it makes it impossible for us to sit down and discuss ways to support them as employees. Hernandez-Jason says they're willing to meet with the students if they call off the strike. He says the long-term solution is more housing. The high cost of housing is something that impacts everyone in our campus community, the Santa Cruz community, and really the large swaths of California. It's not only graduate students who feel they deserve more. This week, UC Santa Cruz skilled craft workers, carpenters, plumbers, and electricians, who the university says make roughly between 80 to $100,000 a year, also began an open-ended strike over pay and staffing. 
Joe Baxter is an electrician. He's been with the school for 15 years and says he lives in a mobile home with his family. We're striking because we're understaffed and we're trying to get more staffing. They don't replace people who retire. Solidarity rallies in support of the graduate students have also taken place at UC Davis, UC Berkeley, and UC Santa Barbara. In Santa Cruz, Erica Mahoney, KAZU News. With KEZU News, I'm Michelle Loxton. On the campus of... Okay. <clears throat> now, there are some people, <clears throat> educational workers, cultural workers, we could call them, who are trying to live on $2,400 a month. That's before taxes. In Santa Cruz, probably one of the most expensive areas in the world. But there's a university there. Who's going to do that teaching? That undergraduate teaching that a lot of the uh, more famous professors don't, don't want to do. Who's going to do the gut work, the, the in and out work, the day work? You have to have people do that. You have to have workers to do that. Just like any big institution, you need workers. So if you relocate to a place like Santa Cruz where your workers can't afford to live, or San Francisco or Los Angeles. That, that's the big contradiction of capitalism. And speaking of capitalism, let's listen to Richard Wolff. Uh, it's called Answering Our Critics, and I'll play, uh, I'll play quite a bit of it, because he talks about the common arguments that you get about socialism. So let's listen up. Well, welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update. This one for a new year just beginning. This is a program, as you know, that comes to you every week, devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives jobs, incomes, debts, our own, those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. Today's program is a little bit unusual. I have pulled together the three most frequently directed criticisms at the kinds of ideas that we develop on this program, that Democracy at Work, the organization behind all of this, uh, promotes in its various forms. I thought this would be a good opportunity to mention these criticisms, to recognize them, and to respond in a systematic way to each of them. So that's what we're going to do, and I think most of you will probably have heard such criticisms as well, and so I hope it will be of interest to you as we go through it. The first one is the criticism that capitalism is great because poverty in the world is less today than it was 100 years ago, 300 years ago. All kinds of people, politicians, professors, media folks, repeat this kind of argument that we shouldn't somehow be critical of capitalism in a basic way because look what it has done for poverty. So now let me respond because I think that criticism is ill-advised or to use a simpler term, it's wrong. And let me explain why. First, 
Capitalists have resisted virtually every effort to do away with poverty that I am aware of. And so it is peculiar to call for credit when you have opposed the very thing that you're taking credit for. Let me give you an example. The capitalists in the United States opposed the minimum wages when they were passed 75 years ago and consistently ever since right till this minute. The Republican Party has worked very hard, unfortunately with good cooperation from many in the Democratic Party, to keep minimum wages from being raised even at the minimum rate of inflation. So that's not a step that shows you're interested in or able to improve on poverty. The reason we have a minimum wage is that the labor unions and the mass of working people pushed real hard to get them. It's not something that capitalists deserve or should get any credit for. The same applies to raising wages and salaries. The business community, the capitalists, are notoriously uninterested in doing that. I'm being polite. They oppose it at every chance. If confronted with rising wages that workers have managed to get, you know what they do? Yes, of course you know what they do. They move jobs out of the country to where wages are cheaper don't they? They bring in immigrants who are desperate in order to give them jobs at lower money. And if none of those strategies work, they replace people with machines. This is not a way to avoid poverty. This is a way to guarantee it. And finally, every effort to improve the conditions of working people, to get them out of poverty, have been opposed by capitalists past and present. When Franklin Roosevelt, under the pressure of unions and working people, set up the social security system in the 1930s, you know who opposed it? Let me tell you. The business community, the chambers of commerce, all of the capitalist class, with a few exceptions, were dead opposed. And in case you think that's ancient history, let's go to modern France. Starting in December of last year, the French people went out millions of them, to protest what? The effort of their prime minister, their president, Mr. Macron, doing the work of the capitalist class in France, wanted to lower the pensions that workers get. That's not a contribution to overcoming poverty. It's the opposite. So what is this bizarre business that the capitalists want us to give them credit for the diminution of poverty when that had to be done over and against their resistance? It's really extraordinary. Let me give you another example. During the 1930s, we had the greatest uprising of the American working class in our country's history. They threatened to get rid of Mr. Roosevelt as president, or maybe even to make a revolution if something wasn't done to help people during the greatest collapse of capitalism in its history, the Great Depression of the 1930s. And as a concession to this mass movement, and over the objections of capitalists, Mr. Roosevelt established Social Security, the first minimum wage, unemployment insurance for people who lose their job through no fault of their own, and a public jobs program for the millions of people for whom no work was available from the private capitalists in charge of jobs. 
That created the American middle class. There wasn't such a thing before. It was the rich and everybody else. A middle was created, not by the generosity of capitalism, but over and against the opposition of capitalists. And guess what? To prove it, the capitalists after World War II, led by the Republican Party and the business community, took back step by step everything that Mr. Roosevelt had been pressed to give to the American working class. Capitalism it doesn't get the credit for eliminating poverty. It has been the opponent of all of that. But let me get to the last step of re responding to this criticism. Imagine that somebody was apologizing for slavery and used this argument. Well, the slaves, let's say in 1840, the slaves in 1840, this apologist might argue, are better fed, better clothed, and better housed than they were 30, 50, 100 years ago. Therefore, you should credit slavery. You shouldn't be a critic of slavery because, look, the slaves are in better shape than they were before. Hopefully, I think most of you would right away understand there's something terribly wrong with this argument. Slavery is the problem. How well you treat the slaves goes up and down at the pleasure of the master. That's what slavery means, and that's the problem. You don't justify slavery by pointing out that in certain periods, the slave's condition as a slave got better and forget conveniently when it got worse. The problem is slavery. And guess what? The same is said with feudalism and serfs, and the same applies to capitalism. The problem here is a system that systematically works to keep down wages, to keep down the quality of working conditions, to boost the income of the capitalists, which we call profit. You know it. I know it. And the idea that we should give capitalism the credit for the hard-won escape from poverty that the working class has achieved is an extraordinary and outrageous kind of criticism to offer. The next criticism, perhaps the second most often, goes very simply. Socialism, we are told, hasn't worked I have received emails explaining to me that socialism not only hasn't worked, it hasn't worked anywhere. And this is said very often by people as if this were one of the universal truths that the human race has learned over eons. Well, it's wrong. It's not correct at all. And let me explain. Whether anything, capitalism, socialism, or anything else, succeeds or not depends on how you measure it. Let me take an example from capitalism. Has capitalism succeeded? Well, let's see. We are now in the United States capitalism at a level of inequality we haven't seen for a hundred years. That's right. Capitalism is now steadily worsening the inequality in the United States as every measure, left wing, right wing, and center indicates. Are we to conclude that capitalism is a great success by that measure? I don't think so. Here's another measure. Has capitalism brought people together or is it dividing the country? 
By that standard, capitalism isn't much of a success. Does the United States have a high absolute standard of living? Yes. Maybe by that measure, you would say capitalism is a success. Simple point. Systems, whether they're capitalism or anything else, have their pluses and their minuses. And which ones you focus on will lead you to whatever conclusion about success or failure you want to make in a general way. Using that kind of common sense, let's look at socialism to see whether it's a success or not. Is capitalism working? Is socialism working? Let's see. Socialism's most famous examples are of two kinds. One, where the government comes in and takes over the industries and the agriculture and runs the literal enterprises producing goods and services. The kinds of examples we have, the Soviet Union, uh, China, at least for part of its history, Cuba, and so on. What do we want to say about the success and failure? Well, let's see. If the standard of measure is going to be the rate of growth, how fast these countries were able to escape poverty and to arrive at a standard of living markedly higher than what they had before, then the Soviet Union and China are not just successes, they're great successes, because they did that faster and went further than any capitalist country ever did before. That's right. The rate of growth of the Soviet Union from 1917, when the revolution happened, to 1989, when the country fell apart, that the economic growth they achieved, despite participation, deadly participation in two world wars and a revolution and a civil war and a collectivization of agriculture that was very disruptive, is astonishing. From the most backward country in Europe at the time of the revolution, 1917, by 1975, they were the second global superpower, second only to the United States extraordinary. The only thing more impressive of economic growth than that is the growth of the People's Republic of China from the time of their revolution in 1949 to the present moment, when they have become also the number two economic power after the United States. So if your goal in establishing socialism was to get out of poverty and to become a modern industrialized economy, then socialism as practiced in the Soviet Union and China is a great success, not a failure at all. Now, suppose you measured it in a different way. Suppose you said, what is the status of civil liberties, of political divisions and political freedoms of different political parties and so forth? You would say, well, the Soviet Union wasn't much of a success that way, and neither is the People's Republic of China. They had a dominant communist party that controlled the government and all the operations of government. So you wouldn't give them a big high grade on that score. Okay, fair enough. So they're successful in some ways and not in others. But the notion that they have never succeeded is silly. Let me continue, if I can, after our break, because we've come to the end of the first half of the program. And as usual, I want to bring a couple of things to your attention. First,
Richard Wolff discussing some of the common critiques of uh, socialism. And uh, we'll go back to the second half of that. Let's play some uh, labor songs. Here we go. Come all you coal miners, wherever you may be. And listen to a story that I relate to thee. My name is nothing extreme, but the truth to you I'll tell. I am a coal miner's wife, I'm sure I'll wish you well. Coal mining is the most dangerous work in our land today. With plenty of dirty slave and work and very little pay. Coal miners, won't you wake up and open your eyes and see what the dirty capitalist system is doing to you and to me. They take your very lifeblood, they take our children's lives. Take fathers away from children and husbands away from wives. Come miners, won't you organize whatever you might be and make this a land of freedom for workers like you and me. Dear miners, they will slave you till you can't work no more. And what will you get for your living but a dollar in a company store? A tumble-down shack to live in, snot rain pours in the tub. You have to pay the company rent, your paying never stops. I am a coal miner's wife, I'm sure I wish you well. Let's sink this capitalist system in the darkest pits of hell. There is mean things happening. 
much cotton in our sacks, so we have none on our backs. There is mean things happening in this land. Oh, yeah. There is mean things happening in this land. There is mean things happening in this land. Lots of groceries on the shelves, but we have none for ourselves. Yeah. 
happening in this land and the, the classic by Joe Hill the preacher and the slave you will eat by and by in that glorious land up in the sky sorry we can't help you now though put your money down and the Lord will save you and someday you'll go to heaven okay talk about delayed gratification <laughs> I want to finish up now with Richard Wolff's comments about socialism. These are things you can, pardon me, these are things you can use when you talk with people. What's socialism anyway? What's good about it? What's bad about it? What's capitalism? What's good about it? What's bad about it? You need to know. People say all kinds of off-the-wall things, as Wolf is saying. It doesn't work. Well, it has worked. He's going to talk about how it works in Scandinavian countries. Richard Wolf. And we maintain two websites, democracyatwork.info and rdwolf.com. Please make use of them. We could, you can communicate to us. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and so forth. I want to particularly thank the Patreon community that supports us uh, in such an enthusiastic way. Very grateful for all of that. And I want to remind you that we have just released our new book, Understanding Socialism, and that that is in a response to many of the kinds of questions, including those we're dealing with today. And I would urge you, if you're interested in these questions and getting our answers, take a look at it, Understanding Socialism, just released. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. I wanted to make one short announcement that I didn't get time for in the first half. 
Many of you have been doing quietly something enormously helpful to us over the years, which is to recommend to your local public or community radio station the idea of carrying this program. Indeed, that's the way we went from the one program in New York City on station WBAI to the 100 stations that now broadcast this program across the United States. I wanted to thank you, but even more, I wanted to ask those of you listening, if you or someone you know uh, would be interested in having this program on a local radio station, the best way to get that to happen is for you, a local person, a listener, uh, to let them know in your area that you would like to see this program, you'd like to hear this program, and we would appreciate enormously whatever initiative you could take to get this program on more stations across the country. Just communicate with us. Go to the website, democracyatwork.info. Let us know that there is a radio station that is interested. We will take it from there. We need contact information, who to contact, and so on. But we're always in the market for that. And please continue your kind efforts to help us in that regard. It's enormously appreciated. Well, we were talking about the pros and cons of socialism, the ways in which it did indeed work, and the ways also, which we're going to go into now, in which it didn't. But before that, I want to get to another kind of this criticism that socialism never worked. People who have in mind Russia or China or Cuba make the comment that they have a lower standard of living than we do here in the United States, and they have fewer civil liberties and political freedoms. Well, I think there's some Something to that argument. These countries started at a very poor level of development, to say the least, back in the 20th century. They've had a long way to go. They've gone faster than anybody else did, but they're still at a lower standard of living. Fair enough. And many of those countries, Russia, China, Cuba, have some way to go in terms of civil liberties and political freedoms. So let's take a look at another group of countries that refer to themselves as socialists, or at least an awful lot of people do. And I'm talking here about Scandinavia, Western Europe, Norway, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, and in many ways, Germany, France, Italy, and so on. What am I meaning by that? Well, socialism has often meant that the government comes in and takes a role to even things out in society, to create minimum standards of living that are nice and high, to provide all kinds of services at little or no cost to the people, a national health uh, insurance program, free public education, subsidized housing, transport, and so on often referred to as the socialist countries of Europe, let's take a look, because if that's what we call socialism, as millions of people do, then guess what? They have as high a standard of living as the United States, or higher. They have political freedoms, more or less like the United States, contesting political parties in a spectrum from left to right that's actually wider, with more political choice than we have here in the United States. In other words, if you want to use civil liberties, you want to use political freedoms, and you want to use standard of living, then there are parts of the socialist experience that have done real well according to those standards. They haven't grown quickly on the scale of Russia or China, but... They have standards of living and civil liberties and political freedoms that they don't have to put second to anybody else. 
once again, this is a way in which socialism has worked very well in these countries, which is why they fight so hard to keep their National Health Service, to keep their subsidized education. In Germany today, as I've mentioned before, higher education, college and university is absolutely free. No fees, no tuition, and not just for German citizens, for anyone in any country who moves to Germany for an education, they don't pay either. That's a remarkable service, and no politician in Germany dares to work against it. But does socialism therefore offer some utopia? Of course not. Does socialism have drawbacks? You betcha. I've mentioned some, but here's one that I think is very important. Socialism always meant going beyond capitalism, not making capitalism less burdensome, say by a minimum wage, say by subsidized housing. It was the idea to go beyond. And if that's the kind of notion of socialism you have, then you would find existing socialisms, whether of the Soviet and Chinese variety or of the Scandinavian variety, wanting You'd say they weren't successful because they haven't gone beyond what? The employer-employee relationship, a system of production that has us all working in factories, offices, and stores where a tiny group of people, the owner, the board of directors in a corporation, make all the decisions and we have to live with them. The absence of democracy in the workplace is a critique of capitalism that socialism has not yet overcome and can be criticized for. But the general idea that socialism hasn't worked is a criticism without merit. Let me get then to the third of these classic criticisms that have been leveled at us. And this one isn't about socialism and so forth. It's about the idea of worker co-ops, the idea that an individual, this is the way the criticism works, who invents a new product or a new idea or a new concept would have to share it, heaven forbid, with the employees as this individual inventor, let's call him or her, works out their invention into a product that we can all use. I broke through, I invented, why should I share my great invention with my employees who come on later to work in my enterprise but didn't participate in inventing? Wow. I find this extraordinary. Let's, let's begin with what's wrong with this criticism. First, one thing to invent. Another thing is to exploit workers. You don't need to exploit workers in order to invent. And you don't need to give an inventor the incentive of exploitation to get him or her to invent. This is a kind of bizarre argument. If what you're saying is we need to give an incentive to people to invent new products, new ideas, new technologies, I'm with you. Let's give them an award. Let's give them lots of public recognition. Let's give them some financial inducement. I'm, I'm okay with all of that. That's a way of encouraging people. No problem. But that doesn't require, nor does it justify, exploiting them later. Suppose I told you of a society in which, to give an incentive to investors, they were told, look, if you will just invent something to invest then in it and build it up, you, we're so grateful, we're going to give you three slaves for the rest of your life. We'd all gasp in horror. 
We don't need to do that. One doesn't require, and it certainly doesn't justify the other. Yes, we want innovative people, but we're not going to pay for it by going back on our commitment to abolish slavery. Wow. Let's give the inventor a reward, no problem. But that doesn't require that in the company that really makes the invention come alive and become real for us all, we have to allow one person to exploit, make money off the labor of others. You know, a decent investor wouldn't require, excuse me, a decent inv inventor wouldn't ask it and wouldn't require it. A decent inventor knows they're helping society. They're making it possible for less labor to produce as much output as before. They're helping develop the community that nurtured them. They don't need to be in a position to be the employer who rips profit out of workers whose wages they keep down. Let me get at it another way. I hear often the argument, well, the businessman or woman is taking a risk. They're investing their money into this enterprise to start it, say, perhaps an inventor who came up with a new idea, and they're taking the risk, and so something is supposed to follow from that. They're going to be in charge. I always found this an offensive argument. Here's a reason. The workers who go to work for the person who starts a business, they're taking risks too. That worker didn't take another job to work in this one. That worker may have moved his or her family from one place to another, their kids out of one school to another. They are putting their lives into this company, into the community around this company. We don't pay them for that risk, do we? We pay them for the work they do, but not for the risk they took. If you want to reward the employer for the risk he or she takes, well, you're going to have to reward the workers also for the risk they take. But this is something the capitalist never wants to do. And you know, there is a difference. The one who takes the risk to start and own a company, he or she is the one making the decisions. The risk taken by the worker is much poorer. You know why? Because they're taking a risk, but the decisions that will determine whether that risk pays off are not in their hands, are not under their control, because democracy doesn't exist in the workplace. The risk taken by the employer is a risk over which the employer has some control and decision-making. The risk taken by the employee, they have none. And here's another way of looking at it. Many of the Structures of capitalism are an incentive not to invest, not to invent. Let me give you just a few examples. You know many of them. Years ago, we learned how to make a light bulb that lasts forever. But the companies involved in making light bulbs didn't want that. And so there's an incentive in capitalism to block, to prevent invention. That has to be measured in here somewhere, too. Years ago, we knew that public transportation, trolleys, buses, much cheaper way of moving people than the private automobile. But the companies that were involved in making private automobiles, GM, Ford, and so on, they didn't want that. And they took steps to prevent it. There's an example of capitalism profit being an incentive to block efficiency, to block breakthroughs in public transportation. 
Let me give you another one. I recently returned from Europe on an airplane. The seats were unbelievable. They, they were so narrow, I felt like a sardine. Why is an airplane seat rendered less and less comfortable over time? Because there's a profit incentive to the airline companies to make it so uncomfortable that we will all pay extra to have a place where we can stretch our legs, pay extra so we are not developing a new spine as a result of an eight-hour trip, etc. There are incentives that work very perversely in capitalism, and we ought to deal with them as well. Yet another example. What incentive is there for workers to figure out new ways of doing things if the result of developing a new machine is that you lose your job? You know what new machines mostly do? They automate. And automation means when you replace workers with machines. And you know what you do to the workers who are replaced by a machine? You throw them out of work. The prospect of unemployment is a disincentive to invest and to invent for the mass of the working people. If you really cared about incentives to invent, you'd create the rewards for everybody. You wouldn't allow unemployment because that blocks the incentive to invent. Everybody have an incentive if there was no unemployment and we rewarded everybody. Capitalism doesn't do that. It creates an incentive for profitable investment, and that doesn't require allowing you to exploit people who take the risk of working with you later, nor should you want it. The notion that somehow nobody would ever invent anything unless they were allowed to exploit afterwards, whether it's a slave or a serf or a worker, never held water. Those other systems had their development of new technologies, just like capitalism, and a future of a democratic workplace will be at least as inventive as anything capitalism has so far achieved. Thanks for your attention. We've come to the end of today's program. And I look forward to talking with you again next week. That was Richard Wolf with his economic update. If you go to his website, he's got something new up there all the time. Wolf uh, has um, a real knack for explaining economic principles. Uh, in the real world and how that works in the real world. Um, the notion that he's talking about is someone would wouldn't do an wouldn't do an invention if it didn't make them a lot of money. That rings of Anne Rand that we saw uh, somebody mistakenly put on a movie of the Fountainhead, and that was Gary Cooper's argument. Anne Rand's argument was that. As a creator, he's, it's his property, no matter what. Not the people who bring it to fruition, the workers. Not the people who share all the risks by working there. Uh, this is crazy. Crazy, uh, very extreme capitalistic notion. But it's there in that argument. Okay, I mentioned that I want to play a couple of songs for uh, for a friend, a good buddy, E.J. Coleman. 
Here it is. Brittany Howard is her name, and it's called Stay High. Stephen Colbert is going to present. Ladies and gentlemen, Brittany Howard.
wasn't it? Beautiful. Thank you, Earl. Here's another one I got from Earl many years ago. He uh, had it in a 45, fíjate, 45, Hungry Country Girl. Fleetwood Mac, the great Otis Spunk. You know these people walking around here talking about the woman on the left of them, all that kind of okay and all. I don't see why that woman has to leave them. Mine's ain't left me yet. But I don't know how soon. I keep that woman on my mind, just as fat and healthy as she can be. She will do. You know, because I raise hogs, chickens, and cows, and everything. And she better not act like she's hungry. No, it's a cow dead. And if she want a choke, I go out there and catch one of them chokes. And she have pork chops all the week. She will. And every time she get hungry, she get evil. You can't blame the girl, cause she's a country girl. Now my baby's a country girl, and she just can't help herself. Yes, my baby's a country girl, and she just can't help herself.
It's uh, time for us to get out of here now. Uh, that last beautiful set, beautiful, beautiful song by Brittany Howard, Stay High. And in the middle there was Fleetwood Mac playing behind uh, the great Otis Spahn, if there's a better blues piano solo. I don't know what it is. Um, hungry Country Girl. And finally, uh, <clears throat> Waylon Jennings' last concert before his untimely death with his wife, Jesse Coulter, and their version of Suspicious Minds. We got to get out of here now. This is the bee telling you if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Of course, they don't want you to have unions. Your work makes them rich. <laughs> We're going to go out together today with Ry Cooter. Ry Cooter's version of... Um, the Woody Guthrie song, the Do Re Mi. Here he is. And uh, tells a story about these the people they call them Okies and Arkies and stuff, you know, because they came from Oklahoma and, and Arkansas and, and uh, Texas and places. And the dust storm came and, and ruined their farms and and their <clears throat> houses and everything. They had to get out. Figured they couldn't do worse. Said, so long, it's been good to know you. And we're moving west. And they got out there, they found all these uh, border police at the California border telling them to go back. They said, we can't go back. They said, man, you can't stay here. I'll just hear a little bit of this one. And this little song tells about uh, what happened to them. Do re mi.
desert sands they roll Get out of that old dust bowl Think they're coming to a sugar bowl But here's what they find Well, police have port of entry safe Boys, you're up to 14,000 for the day Hey, and if you ain't got that dog your boy CFO here here to let you know that the fifth annual mutiny radio comedy festival is March 1st through 7th 2020 with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week get your tickets now on Eventbrite just search mutiny radio and get ready for 76 comics from all over the U.S. coming for 66 programs in seven days all here at 2781 21st Street in the heart of the mission or if you can't be with us listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at www.mutinyradio.fm Join us March 1st to 7th for these amazing events. What kind of a future? Claw Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Claw Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Terrace, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Permanent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834. San Francisco Mutiny Radio San Francisco Mutiny Radio Listen to live streaming radio Or download a podcast And you can listen on the go Listen to live streaming radio Or download a podcast And you San Francisco Mutiny Radio San Francisco Mutiny Radio MutinyRadio.fm Why not make a donation? MutinyRadio.fm Streaming live the station MutinyRadio.fm District of the Mission MutinyRadio.fm MutinyRadio.fm Listen to Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Look, why not go to mutinyradio.fm, hit the donate button, stream them live, download a podcast, have some fun!
59 gold Cadillac with the white and carry when I drove it up here. And I started to do some thinking. around in it on the freeway and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black classic. Smoking big spliffs and cruising Saturday noon to two. On the freeway. Good I am a total Colonel Blake, Henry, yeah, Charlie here, yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your, uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch a full-length movie. What's happening? This is your boy Rob Edwards. I'm here to tell you about the fifth annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's March 1st through the 7th, 2020, with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week long. Get your tickets on Just search the radio and get ready for 76 comments from all over the U.S. Coming for 66 programs in seven days, all here at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission, or listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at Mutiny Radio. .fm. Join us March 1st through the 7th for these amazing events. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's joke workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. 
Counteroffer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counteroffer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counteroffer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South. 